Well, as you know, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, but we're pausing because in 1 Samuel chapter 19, we read that Saul had sent assassins to David's house to watch him so that they could kill him. And because of this event, David wrote Psalm 59. It says in the prologue to that psalm that it was written when Saul sent people to kill him. So we're going to continue through Psalm 59 tonight. There's one thing we learn from Psalm 59, I believe, about David. We learn much about God, much about the enemies of God, but we learn some things about David. And one thing I think that stands clear when we look at David is that David never took his eyes off of God. He always kept his eyes focused on God. So let us read Psalm 59 together. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mitcom of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil, Silah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs, prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Silah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. This morning we touched on God's work in saving us. This was part of the message that for us to believe the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for our justification We need the Holy Spirit to change us. For us to have faith in Christ, God must do his work. 
But for those whom God has already worked, there is great, great blessing and benefit. We see a rich treasure store of promises and favor and blessing for all those whom God has redeemed to himself. He has called you by name. You are his. You are his own people. Last week we noticed that it's right for us to call on God. We can call on a personal God because when enemies attack us, it's personal to God just as it's personal to you. Even if the injustice is great, God is greater and he's jealous for you. That was last week. This week we're going to continue in that theme. We're going to see the great confidence we have of God's love just by looking at the confidence David had. When he cried out to God, when he looked at his enemies, and when he saw God's response. Look at his cry to God in verse 5. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Silah. That's an amazing verse just to think about this particular verse. We talked last week about how usually in Hebrew the verb comes first in the sentence and then the subjects and all the other words of a sentence. In this particular verse, we see God coming first. And whenever this is done in Hebrew, it's done for emphasis. It's as if he's saying, God, you're the only one who can do that verb that's coming next. And that's why he says you. He didn't need to say you. He could have just said Lord God of hosts. He didn't need to say Lord God of hosts. He could have just said God. He adds these descriptors, these names of God for a reason. God is the only one who can help him. He says you, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God of hosts. If you ever remember in the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, how you have that line that sometimes confuses people where it says Sabaoth is his name. That's hosts. It's the angel armies. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. That's the God he's calling on to rouse himself to fight his enemies. He calls on God. It's a cry of desperation to the only person who can help. And that's God. And this should be part of our prayers every day. Every day. Because only God can help us every day. You think, well, this isn't anything that I really need to get God involved in. I can pretty much handle this one myself. You cannot. Bring God into every area of your life in prayer. If you're praying through the Lord's Prayer daily, if that's the fountain from which all the rest of your prayers start, it's a good habit. I do the same. But one of the requests that you are making every day is, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. You may have said that word, those words hundreds of times, but what does it mean when you pray, your kingdom come? Well, the first thing that acknowledges is that the world is not what it should be, right? Do you hear that? Your kingdom come. In other words, we want it to be right. Bring your kingdom. All mankind are children of wrath by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, as Ephesians 2 tell us. So we pray your kingdom come. We're praying, break the back of Satan. Crush the kingdom of the enemy. That's the first thing that says. 
David's prayer for the destruction of God's enemies and his enemies is really the prayer of all God's people for all time. Your kingdom come, Lord. Secondly, we see in this little phrase that we want God's kingdom on earth, the church militant, as the reformers called it, the church that is still in the battle with sin and Satan, to grow in grace. When we say your kingdom come, we're saying fill your church, bring people to yourself. Let the gates of hell not prevail against your church. But then it also kind of looks forward to the eternal kingdom. Because that's another meaning of God's kingdom. The, the eternal final kingdom. Let it come. Let it come quickly. Come Lord Jesus. May we see the heavenly kingdom as clearly better than anything else on this earth. So David in verse 5 is basically praying this part of the Lord's prayer. He's saying, your kingdom come. Lord God, come. Help. May the justice of your throne be felt now in my situation on this earth. And all your enemies be destroyed. We should all be praying every day. We should all be praying all day every day. You should bring God into every bit of your prayer life. One of my favorite prayer warriors, I've told you before, is Thomas Jackson. It said before he ever put a letter in the mail, he prayed for the mail carrier. He prayed for the person who would touch the mail. He prayed for the receiver of the mail. He prayed for the person who would open the letter. Before he brought a glass of water to his lips, he would thank God for this water. He would thank God for the person who brought him the water. He brought prayer into every aspect of his life. So thankful was he for the work of God in every bit of his life. We should all be praying like that. For big problems, for small problems. David had a big problem. Someone's trying to kill him. People are trying to take his life. Cut off his head. But even for small things. Do you think the God who's numbered every hair of your head doesn't care about small things? He cares about everything regarding his people. All the Bible is useful to teach us how to pray. If you don't know how to pray, pray through the Psalms. Pray through Psalm 59. And really, all parts of Scripture can teach you something about prayer, but especially the Lord's Prayer. Like That's a wonderful place to start. If you look at your shorter catechism, you're wondering how to do that. I mean, pray the words of the Lord's Prayer in questions 100 to 107. Really kind of break out each phrase and show you kind of the, the full extent of what at least they thought it meant, and it's blessed my prayer life immensely. So pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray the Scriptures in your prayer, and then let all of the rest of your prayer flow from that wonderful spring of prayer. David prayed often. The Psalms are our prayer book. They're a testimony to his life of prayer. And David is here crying to God in prayer. He's saying, destroy your enemies. It's a valid prayer. But let's look at the enemies that he's praying about. Look at verse 6. They come back every evening howling like dogs, prowling about the city. You know, even the most mighty and powerful enemies of God on the whole earth are often viewed in Scripture as animals, as dogs, as grasshoppers. Look at Isaiah 40. Look at Psalm 22. Look at Matthew 7. 
I'll just read a couple. Psalm 22. Remember Psalm 22, Jesus probably quoted this psalm on the cross. If not, he referenced it by calling out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in Psalm 22, verse 16 and verse 20, he says, Dogs encompass me. Evildoers surround me. Save my precious life from the dog. The enemies of God are small things compared to the might of God. He also says in Matthew, this is Jesus talking in Matthew 7, Do not give to dogs what is holy. Who are the dogs? That seems rude. No, he's just talking about the enemies of God. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. That seems rude. He's just talking about the enemies of God, people who hate God. They're referred to as dogs and pigs. Philippians 3, be, beware of dogs. Look out for evildoers. People seeking to destroy the church, Paul's talking about. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, describing those who are going to face judgment. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters. So the people who come against David, the people who come against the church, are viewed by God as nothing but animals. They're, they're not a threat to him at all. And David says these people don't give him any rest. They come back howling like dogs. They're persistent. They're relentless. Verse 14, every evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. It's the second time he said that. He's feeling like he's constantly under attack. They look about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Why do David's enemies never rest? It's because they're inspired by Satan, who never rests. Their master is constantly roaming around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Demons never get tired. They don't care who their target is. If it's someone in the church... They're filled with glee that they could destroy any person who calls themselves Christ's. Of course, they're under the authority of God ultimately, but that's still their mission. And if they can physically harm people, they will certainly try. But they also use their words, and David is particularly touched by this. He says in verse 7, they're bellowing out with their mouths, God's enemies are with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. Swords in their lips. These are people who are trying to destroy David with their words. Satan and his people use words as weapons to destroy people, relationships, churches, etc. And this same metaphor is used throughout the Scriptures too in Proverbs 12, Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Have you ever been talking to someone and you feel like you're just getting jabbed with a sword, like every word is measured to hurt? And you're like, ah, ooh. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of a mouth defiles a person. James warns us that the tongue is a small member, it boasts of great things, and it sets a whole forest ablaze. Speaking of those in the church, in James chapter 1, he says, If anyone is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, 
He deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. So the enemies of God inside and outside the church will always use their words to hurt the people of God. And in the end, it will be to their own harm. It will come back upon them. Why is that? They say, who will hear us? They feel like nothing can touch them in their pride and in their conceit. They attack the people of God, but really, they're poking God himself in the eye. That's what we talked about last week. God is so in touch, in tune with his own people, with his sheep. He protects them. But these people, verse 12, it says, the words of their lips, the sin of their mouths, they should be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies they utter consume them. This is David's prayer. Why? So that God, they will know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. I think we always need a reminder to guard our own words. Who of us doesn't sin in what we say? We all do. Words are either used to build up or to tear down. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I want you to step back with me for just a minute. Just think about words. Think about talking, speech, the ability to express our thoughts. What a gift. Animals cannot do it. They can't think and express their thoughts like humans. That's a gift from God. That's part of our image bearing. Our God is a God who likes to talk. He talks in Scripture. He talks through the Word of God preached. He talks to you when you read and study it. Through His Word, we understand God. And yet we are able to talk as well. And even unredeemed people, even the enemies of God, can use words and communicate. What a blessing. What compassion for God that he would allow even enemies to talk, to express their thoughts, and to reason, and to think, and then to put these words, these these words and these thoughts. Not only do we talk, but we can also sing. We We can write poetry. We see poetry even in the first couple chapters of the Bible. We can arrange words in a beautiful way. This is a gift from God. It's a precious gift. And then to put it in music, and we all know that music touches your soul in a special way, in a way that just the spoken word often does not. It's a gift from God. He calls us to sing His praise. This is what He also desires. The Psalms are poems put to music. It's a gift. It's a gift meant to glorify God and to praise our Creator. So it's no wonder that from the very beginning, Satan has corrupted words, speech, song, music, for his own purposes, for rebellion, destruction, murder. He's a liar and the father of lies. Lies are what? False words. Words that are deceitful. He uses words as well. Satan always does that with all the gifts of God. He takes them and he twists them for his own purposes, and it's, it's wickedness. But this is why words are never neutral. All the words spoken by humans either testify to God's grace and his glory, 
Either as common grace, the unredeemed who speak beautiful words, even though they don't understand where the ability comes from. Or particular grace, the spiritual words of life that we all know and cherish from God's word. So all words either testify to God's grace or to the murderous thoughts of the enemy. There's nothing like a neutral word that exists. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I remember growing up hearing, you know what is, you know what you're full of by what spills out when you get bumped, spills out of your mouth. But regarding David and his cry and the enemies that are seeking to destroy him, we see that David is calling out to God, but then he comforts himself in God as well. And like David, we don't need to pay attention to the words of our enemies. We need to know God's word because these people are poking God in the eye. Psalm 17 says, this is David again, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. So David wants to remain the apple of God's eye. In Zechariah 2, we hear the prophet say, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So David knows he's a chosen son of God. And he knows that God is not just his God, but his Savior, his protector, his shepherd. And these enemies who come after him have no hope. God looks at them like he's kicking off a little dog. He's stepping on a grasshopper. They have no hope against the Almighty God. They're like dogs howling at the moon. They can never come close to touching it, but they look at its light. So what's God's response? His response to the enemies of God is in verse 8. To the enemies of David as well. The Lord laughs at them. He holds all the nations in derision. David knows the power of God. And what a horrible and terrible thought. If you are one of God's enemies, that God looks at you and laughs at you. This isn't a ha-ha moment. When God is laughing at you, he's laughing at your rebellion. Do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. The nations are like a drop in the bucket, the dust on a scale. They are less than nothing and emptiness, we read in Isaiah 40. We should not be afraid when enemies attack us. So God laughs at his enemies and our enemies and he gives his people confidence and strength. Why is that? Because we know the end of the story. We know the truth. We know that God wins. His people will be protected and his people will be cherished and brought to glory. So God is our fortress and we will never be shaken. But it's not just God's power and his wisdom that give David confidence. So power, that's good. We like a God who's powerful Wisdom, that's wonderful. We like a God who's wise. But it's not just those two things that give David confidence. He's not just a good king and a judge, but he's an adopting father and a loving brother and a comforting spirit. We're sons of the king. The triune God are for us. Let's conclude just by looking at God's love. His love for his people. David knows this love. 
Look with me at verse 10. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. Just before that, he says, you, God, are my fortress. In verse 9, he says, oh, my strength, I watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God's steadfast love gives him strength, makes him feel secure like he's in a fortress. Look at verse 16. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress. Look at verse 17. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. Do you see the pattern there? It's sweet. The steadfast love of God gives David strength and makes him feel secure. This should work for us as well. And you need to understand this word steadfast love. It's translated a few different ways. And that's because it's a hard word to translate correctly, adequately. I think every translation is correct technically in my opinion, but it doesn't encompass all that the word does. So love in English means many things, doesn't it? We use it, it's kind of a sloppy English word. I love my wife. I love ice cream. I love a puppy dog. I love a football team. It's just, it's a messy word. It doesn't really mean the same thing in every context. But you know that this is, In Hebrew, not a sloppy word at all. The word that's translated steadfast love is a word that you all should understand as as fellow children of Abraham. You need to know this Hebrew word because it's all through the Bible. 250 times it's used in the Old Testament and it's always used in basically the same way. Look at Psalm 136, steadfast love, steadfast love about 50 times. Your steadfast love endures forever. So you need to see this word through the eyes of a Hebrew God follower as those grafted in, children of Abraham. It's the Hebrew word hesed. We've talked about it a few times before. It certainly includes the idea of emotional love. We do love God. Volitional, emotional love. We love him. But added to this is a sense of loyalty and obligation, faithfulness and graciousness. It's translated variously, mercy, loving kindness, and faithfulness, loyal love, dependable love, steadfast love. But I think the most important thing to know is when it's used, it's almost always referring to God's covenant with his people, his covenant love, that he will be their God. This is the context of the word hesed. He will be your God and you will be his people. And this isn't a controversial fact. Theologians all see it. It's just expressing it properly that's difficult. So steadfast love, I believe, is as good as any attempt to understand it. When God covenants with his people, it will never change. It's always sound and sure. This is the love that David is referring to when he says that your steadfast love is a fortress You're my strength. David's confident that God will keep his covenant with his own blood-bought people till death do us part. 
He's a covenant-keeping God. And his love for his people rests on his own promises. The covenant formula seen throughout the scriptures, even to the book of Revelation. I will be your God and you will be my people. Genesis chapter 17, when God affirms his covenant with Abraham. Gives him the ordinance of circumcision. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you for all their generations. That's us. We're the generations of Abraham. As an eternal covenant in order to be to you a God and to your seed after you. I will be their God. And then Jesus instituted the the new covenant, excuse me, the new covenant by his blood. The new covenant doesn't replace the old covenant of grace. It's basically an expansion of the covenant of grace. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always. You see, the whole world now will become covenanted to God, to be God's own treasured people and possession. I will be their God and they will be my people. Very quickly, look at Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 36, Revelation 21. Some of my favorite passages that talk of this. Leviticus 26:12. he's given the law to the people who have just left Egypt, just left slavery. He says, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah 30, talking of the new covenant. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, talking of the new birth. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I give your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. At the end of the world, Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the the work of God throughout all of redemptive history. He brings a people to himself and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. His intention throughout scripture is plain from the beginning. And it's not surprising that he does all that's required in the covenant to accomplish this work. You remember when Abraham was put into a deep sleep, he had cut the animals in half and He thought he was going to covenant with God by walking through these animals the way the kings of the east would do. They would walk through both of them that they were covenanting together with blood on their feet as if to say, if I break this covenant or if you break this covenant, may this happen to you. May you be cut in two. And God cuts, or Abraham cuts the animals in half and then God puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through on his own. Abraham doesn't touch the blood. Christ touched the blood. He fulfilled the promised covenant. He will ensure this promise will always be fulfilled for Abraham, for his offspring, to all the generations. 
How did he do this? How did God fulfill the covenant and all the requirements of the covenant? It was by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Which is a fitting point to end on as we are coming to the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we approach your table, we pray in Jesus' name that we would be encouraged by your steadfast love for your people. That we would be encouraged that Jesus Christ has had the blood on his own feet. God himself walked through the pieces of the animal and became the perfect sacrifice in the person of Christ. That we might become his own people and he might be our God to the end of eternity. We thank you for this. We thank you for the encouragement that we have. From this psalm written by our brother David, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged as we partake of your supper in Jesus' name.